Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. The late Robert Whitaker, past president of Hope Sound Bible College in Hope Sound, Florida, was one of the finest ministers to ever stand behind the sacred desk. This sermon was preached at the 1989 Seabreeze Camp Meeting in Hope Sound, Florida, and he titles it, Forgiving One Another. You're going to enjoy this classic message. In the morning Bible studies during this camp meeting, we have been trying to, to follow a theme, stay on the same subject pretty well through the whole camp. I realize that there are those who come and go during camp meetings, some who come in for the first weekend and then early in the week they, or maybe middle of the week they have to leave. And there are others who come in a little later, some just got in yesterday number here this morning who just arrived yesterday and some who came in maybe about the middle of the week but uh, we're building up now for this very last weekend of the camp and of course when you try to follow a theme like this in the morning Bible studies it's a little difficult because people can't hear what you said the uh, day before and it may not make much sense that's bad for me because even when people hear what I say, sometimes it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> but when you don't hear what I said, it is more difficult. And so I try each morning to sort of bring us up to date and to uh, sort of pull things together. Uh, you remember, those of you who've been here through the entire camp, that I began by uh, selecting a, a couple of verses from the book of Titus. One of these was that as Christians... We ought to be careful lest we blaspheme the Word of God uh, by the way we live. And the second one was that we must also live carefully lest we uh, uh, should tarnish the doctrine of God our Savior. We should, uh, should bring reproach on the doctrine and that the admonition of Paul was to Titus to urge the Christians, older ones, younger ones, all of them, were to remember that they should um, adorn the doctrine, which means literally uh, add luster to the doctrine that you profess. And that, of course, Paul tells us in the same passage is the doctrine that says that Christ came into the world uh, to reach all men and that all men could be forgiven and that all men could live right here in this present world, this present evil world, lives of holiness that's the doctrine 
And that's a glorious doctrine. That's a wonderful message to offer the world. That Christ didn't die just for a, an elect few, but he died for all men. And that all men can be saved from all sin and live in this present evil world as his own peculiar people, his own treasure, those who belong especially to him. And that's a glorious truth. And that is a wonderful message. He says, just be sure, by the way you live every day, what you do, what you say, your behavior, just be sure. Be careful. Or you will tarnish that doctrine. And we chose during the camp meeting not to look at others, not to throw stones at anyone else, but just look at ourselves. And if we're saved and sanctified in endeavoring to follow the Lord and walk in every ray of light, we will not mind examining ourselves, looking ourselves over. It's all right. That's perfectly legitimate. And that's what we've been trying to do. So we spent most of our time then in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, and, and uh, in, the, in some of the passages preceding that, chapter 16 and 17, we made reference to. Chapter 18 is a chapter that we have been looking at very closely. Now, this morning, I would like to read a portion of that, so turn with me to Matthew 18, verse 20, uh, 21. Then came Peter to him. Before I read it, let me stop a moment. Bear in mind that Jesus has been um, giving an object lesson to his disciples. The object lesson that he's been giving is this. After hearing their quarreling and hearing their debating, knowing what they were saying about themselves, their rivalry, their critical attitude of one another, he, hearing this, he took this child and sat the child in his lap, put his arms around the child, and then embracing the child, began to teach them about what it means to be great. Now, you're talking about greatness, he said, I will show you what greatness is. So that's the theme, he's been doing that. Greatness is, greatness is, greatness is. Over and over and over. That's what he's been saying. So that's what he's talking about now. He hasn't gotten off the subject yet. So just remember, greatness is the ability to forgive. And so Peter asked him, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. 
Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant... Let's read that again. But the same servant... What servant? The one who had been forgiven. The same servant. Went out. And found one of his fellow servants. Right back to the same theme again. Jesus has not gotten off the subject yet. Back to one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred pence. Ten thousand talents, ten million dollars maybe, twenty million dollars. Millions at least. A hundred pence? Twenty dollars, perhaps. Twenty million dollars over against twenty dollars. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Interesting prayer, isn't it? Interesting plea. It's the same one. Notice it. It is the same one. Word for word. The same plea that he had made to his Lord. And here's his fellow servant right now in front of him, praying, begging, have patience with me. I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. And so when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. And then his Lord, after that, called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt. Why? Because thou desiredst me. Simply stated, simply because you asked me. That's all. Not because you didn't owe it. Not because you had wasted it. Not, all, not that any of that mattered. You got what you got simply because you came and asked me. That's why. You didn't deserve it. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if, if ye from your hearts Forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So the theme is still continuing, isn't it? The responsibility of a, of a believer to his fellow believers. As Christians, we have a tendency to love the lovable, to reject 
the unlovable. There's a tendency that way. Brother Dempsey Fawcett used to say when he preached, sometimes, in fact, one year here at camp, he said, you know, it's awfully hard to love me, he said. He said, it's easy for you to love Brother French. And he pointed to Brother Rob French. Uh, He said, it's awfully easy to love him. He said, it takes a lot of grace to love me. We, We have a tendency to love the people that are the most lovable, easygoing, gentle, and then to reject the unlovable. The child on Jesus' lap was insignificant. The child was probably relatively unimportant. Jesus had just pointed out the importance of people. By using the child, he says, despise not one of these little ones. They are important to me. I really care about them. See, he's building a case. I really care about these little ones. These little ones, he has already said, have angels that are looking into the face of God. These angels in heaven that are looking after them are right looking in the face of God. And then Jesus goes on in this same passage and says to those disciples, is it a surprise to you that God cares? Does it shock you that God cares about lost people, straying people, erring people? Why, he said, remember, remember, men are like sheep when they're lost. He's trying to say to them, you know, this whole matter of being one of my followers is to be like me. And when men are lost, they're like lost sheep, and it's our responsibility to go after them and look for them. You know, Jesus recognized something when he had heard these men quarreling among themselves. He recognized that they would never, ever be able to accomplish the work that he had for them to do in the state of mind and attitude they were in. And the reason was simply because already... The short time that they had walked with him, already they were showing this lack of love. They were not loving one another. Remember, remember that that lack of love always, always manifests itself when there's selfishness, when people exalt themselves. You can't exalt yourself while you love others. When you exalt yourself, you will always put others down. Always. That's why pride is such an ugly thing. Pride is forever looking down on people. It's an awful thing. And you can't love people when you're, when you're doing this to them. Um, you're showing this already, he said. I took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. Look what happens. They come down off the mountain after the transfiguration all puffed up. I commend Peter for a great confession he makes of me. And what does he do? He probably began to feel he was really important. None of you, none of you have anything to boast about. That's what our Lord is trying to say. You have nothing. This little child is an example of what I mean. This child in my arms has no special qualities at all. He has nothing to recommend himself to me. The only claim this child has for any attention from me at all is that he has a need, that he's helpless. That's all. 
There's something about people, all of us. When after we have been forgiven of the most, when we didn't deserve it at all, begin to think we are pretty important. And you find it everywhere. I'd like to think you wouldn't find it in the church. I'd like to think that once you're forgiven, that would just forever settle it. You would always look on others as, as better than you. That you would always regard the other person as higher than you. That you would never look down on anyone again. But sad to say, it doesn't work that way. As I've tried to point out in these services already, if you're, if you're thinking, well, Brother Whitaker, it will, if you get sanctified, then I'm going to ask you, why then do we still have it? Why, if it getting sanctified totally solves the problem, do we still have it? It's not the unsanctified brethren who are estranged that bother me. It's the quote-unquote sanctified brethren who are estranged. That, that's what really bothers me. Again, again this morning, this is not pleasant. I did not ask, I did not say to the Lord, Lord, let me preach this. Because I want to do something radical. I just had to do what God wanted me to do. And I will never, I will never forget a young preacher telling me, uh, Brother Vess, uh, and it was a good friend of yours and of mine, he he uh, told on one occasion how, as a young pastor, he was trying to get two older men reconciled. And he, both of these older men, well saved and well sanctified, and uh, yet they were estranged. And he said, I just was so burdened as a young preacher, and I prayed. And I'll never forget one day on the conference grounds when the younger of those two men who were divided went to his older brother and and said to him, Sir, I am so sorry I've offended and hurt you and I would ask your forgiveness and I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for whatever I've acted. I just want to be... And he said, I stood there and I watched as that older man turned his back on the younger preacher, folded his arms and looked the other way. That's sad, isn't it? That's terribly sad. I don't even like to use these kinds of illustrations because I'm afraid that they're in a congregation this size there would be those who would say, um, Brother Whitaker, that just couldn't happen, could it? And maybe you, you don't want to know that. And I don't like for you to know that. That can happen. And the very burden of my heart during this meeting is that you and I will bring our lives in line so that we will no longer be a reproach. Even though we don't like to talk about that kind of thing, and I don't like even to use those kinds of illustrations, people do watch us. They do see us. One of the 
people are sensitive. Did you know that? People may not be spiritually discerning when they're out in the world. They may not be able to discern spiritual things, but they can feel some things. And people know when they're loved and when they're not loved. They know when people care and when they don't care. They can sense when there's division in the church, even when they're not spiritual. And uh, I don't like to talk about it, but I just want to tell you that don't, let's just not enter into any arguments about saved or sanctified, saved or not sanctified. Did they have a second work? Just forget all of that a while. Every bit of it. How did they act? How did I act in that situation? How did I respond to that brother in need? Forget all the other. Because the picture so often is of a, of a church, all members going off in all different directions, shouting, hallelujah, I'm sanctified. And while the work of the winning of a lost world is left undone. This little child in my arms, Jesus says, has nothing at all to recommend him to me or to anybody else. He's little. He has a need. That's why I have him in my arms. And that's why I love people. That's why I care. They have needs. When they're out in the world, deep in sin, they have needs. When they're caught up running after the lusts of the flesh and living as Men and women who are unsaved live, they have needs. And hear me, when they err, and when they don't agree with you, and even when they fall, they're no less human and no less needy. And don't talk to me, he says, about loving that big world out there when you don't love the little inner circle of brothers and sisters. So don't even talk about it. Jesus saw that in the inner circle of disciples, not the big world, but in the inner circle of the disciples was that incipient form of rivalry and jealousy and rejection. Of one another. He saw his disciples making the same mistake that the Jews had made. He saw them already having that tendency to cut off one another, just as the Jews sought to cut themselves off from one another and from the rest of the world. You see, the Jews forgot that God had placed them in the most strategic spot on the face of the earth. And said to them, you are to be a light to the Gentiles. You say, well, Brother Whitaker, that was to happen later, after Calvary and after Pentecost. It was the will of God that it happened way back there. His people were put in a strategic part of the world. Not to rejoice and to be satisfied over the fact that God had blessed them again and again. He reminded them of, that they were nothing. I found you when you were nothing. You were like a newborn child that had been thrown out strangling on its own blood in the street and I picked you up. You were nothing. 
And he was saying to the children of Abraham, quit boasting about who you are. You were nothing. You were not worthy that I should ever love you. You were not worthy that I should do anything for you. But I did it because I loved you. That's mercy. The law I gave you was because I loved you. And the, re the ritual of worship was because I loved you. That's the only reason I've ever dealt with you. I want you in the world to work for me. You are to be a light. And I'm putting you at the crossroads of the world. But they forgot that. They began to see themselves not as recipients of mercy. They found themselves as being the ones who held the truth. And when they saw themselves as ones who held the truth in us, we're like a hearth where the glowing embers of divine truth are held. No one else can have it. They died. And Jesus came into the world and they were so dead, they didn't even recognize their own Messiah. It's terribly dangerous, he was saying to those disciples. Terribly dangerous. I see in you already those same things. Be careful. Please, he says, let's pull together. Those attitudes are terribly ugly. And they're self-destructive. Always, always self-destructive. It may take a while, but they'll finally destroy you. And then Jesus see, is trying to help them to see. And he goes a step further. He says, now, if a brother does sin, and we talked about that on Wednesday, then try to be reconciled to him. If your brother sins, try to win him back. If your brother sins, try to reconcile him. The disciples were saying, if your brother sins, cut him off. Jesus was saying, if your brother sins, be reconciled to him. I think maybe the, the disciples were getting those verses confused. Verse 8 and verse 15. You think that's possible? Verse 8 says, if your hand or foot offend, cut it off. Verse 15 says, if your brother offends, go and tell him. Talk to him. We've got them reversed. Right? Jesus said, I'm talking about something so radical here that if you see the first sign of it, cut it off. It'll destroy you in hell. First little indication of it, cut it off. With us, it's if our brother offends thee, cut him off. Remember the reason for the careful steps that he gave? We talked about them on Wednesday. The careful steps that he gave were given for a reason. And the reason, I think, is quite simple. The reason was Jesus had a goal in mind. And the goal of the steps that were to be taken was reconciliation and not rejection. It was restoration and not removal. It was not, take these steps so you can finally say, you're a heathen. 
It wasn't go step one, two, and three so that finally you can look that person in the eye and say, away from me, you publican. It's not it at all. The whole idea was reconciliation and restoration. And if you take these steps properly, I'm sure I'm convinced that several things will happen. The first thing probably is that there'll be a lot of misunderstandings that'll be clarified about everything you hear is a result of misunderstandings. And in that process of going through those steps, Jesus is trying to get them to see what you're doing is you're getting back to the only person that can help you know what happened. The only person that'll be able to help you to see the truth of the matter. So go to that person. Don't waste your time going to everybody else. They're just like you. They don't know the facts. Yes, I'm confident that in 99% of the cases, if we took the first steps, then the final step would not have to be taken. Somehow, it could be worked out. Our tendency, however, is to think that every erring brother is a reprobate. To make every difference that anyone has with us a test of orthodoxy. And that's tragic. I don't want to skip too lightly over verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name. I am in the midst of them. Don't look over that lightly. Don't look at verse 19 lightly as though the Lord just happened to stop, change the subject, say, well, let's keep together and we'll have good times and we'll pray together. And That's not what he's saying. He's saying to you that only as you maintain this love and this unity of relationship will you be able to pray and ask me of any, about anything and expect anything. And only as you are gathered together in my name will I be in your midst. The tragic thing, isn't it, when, when the God of, of, the, of, the, of the temple is gone, when the glory of the Ark of the Covenant was removed, wasn't that tragic? Isn't that what moved our Lord to tears as he stood outside Jerusalem and looked at that temple as he had done many times, but at times moved him to tears? Behold, behold, your temple, your house is left unto you desolate. And what good is a temple without the God of the temple? You gather in my name. You agree together to pray. You touch things together. You agree upon things together. And when you do, I'll be there in your midst. Now, as always, this kind of thing brings up questions. It's brought up questions in your mind. The reason it's so impo it's impossible to try to answer everything. I just try my best to anticipate some of the questions, but I can't answer them all. Some things are hard to understand. They're hard to... It bothers me. You know, what about this? What about that? But what about this? And people come to me after a service and they say, but Brother Whitaker, what about this? <laughs> and I understand. I preach sometimes and I say, well, I'm preaching. What about this? How is this going to sound? What? 
people are going to think this and think the other. But whatever this means, it means a whole lot more than what we see going on, by and large, among our people. Now, whatever it means, it's not happening very much in the people who call themselves holiness people. Peter then, as usual, opens his mouth, and when he did, he gave himself away. I want to tell you something. Peter did not ask Jesus this question after having him go through this step-by-step on how to forgive and restore. He didn't ask him this question because he wanted to have a better understanding of the beauty of forgiveness. He asked the question for a simple reason. Same kind of questions we ask. Person talks about forgiveness, but what about this? Person tries to talk about accepting people, but wait, what about this? And Peter is simply saying, wait, Lord, what about this? Isn't there, isn't there, Lord, some time when we finally stop forgiving? Say, Brother Whitaker, he didn't say that. That's exactly what he said. What he was saying was, is there some place along the way where finally I can say to that individual, that is the last time, brother. You have used up all your chances for forgiveness. That's it. It's all over. That's what he's saying. And Jesus, knowing what is in his heart, gave him this illustration, this parable, this teaching. The question of Peter is not one in which he's inquiring sincerely about how to be more compassionate. The question is simply stated, Lord, how long before we get to cut them off? Jesus responded and said to him, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Not 490 either. That's not what he means. Our Lord is simply saying, Peter, get away from numbers. Get away from numbers. Get away from times to forgive. You don't understand me yet. You don't understand me, Peter. Forgiveness is something that just goes on and on and on. And that, dear ones, is overwhelming. That is the reason Jesus gave this illustration. The servant owed the master, the Lord, more money than he could ever possibly pay him. That's the point. It wasn't a debt that he could pay. It was a debt that he could never pay. That's the whole point. It wasn't that if he worked hard enough and saved and did his best that he could get it clear. That isn't it at all. It's like there's no possibility of paying it off. It's hopeless. There are three things that stand out very clearly in those remaining verses, and I'll try to pull this to a close. Three 
three things. There is the first thing that's very obvious, the immensity of that debt. The debt that men owe to God. Because, dear friends, you and I are guilty. We have sinned against a holy God. And please hear me this morning. You are never worthy. Only He is worthy. I am never worthy. You are never worthy. There's a, there's a streak of the Pharisee in us. It comes through when we testify. You hear it if you listen. When I prayed through. Brother, when I got to that altar, I meant business. When I made those restitutions. When I stripped for the race. When I quit this and I quit that and all the rest. And, and it's, a, it's a subtle thing. It may not be intentional, but it gives, a, it gives us a little insight into our theology, our understanding of the atonement. It's like saying, if you would do what I did, then God would forgive you too. Let me just say this morning, and even at the risk of being misunderstood, you can't do anything to deserve God's forgiveness. Nothing you do will ever merit your forgiveness or your salvation. It will make no difference to God how long you cry or how much you pound that altar. It makes no difference to God what you quit doing. It makes no difference to God how many restitutions you make. And if you're depending on that for your salvation, you're depending on a false hope this morning. Now, I know what some are saying. I anticipate this. Ah, you don't believe we ought to pray. You don't believe we ought to repent. You don't believe we ought to make restitution. I didn't say that at all. And if you're honest this morning, you know I didn't say that. I had to pray and repent like you did. I had to make restitutions after I was in Bible school when the Holy Spirit would lay his hand on me. I would write letters and I would say back there when I was in sin, I did this and I did that and I'd have to write. And sometimes I got answers and sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I got answers that said to me, why worry about such a foolish thing? But I tell you, I felt a lot better because I had obeyed God. But I don't stand up and say, that's, be that's why I'm saved, because I made all those restitutions. No, no, no. I have to stand and say I am saved because of the mercy of God, because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, because of the blood that was shed for an unworthy wretch like me. I, the chief of sinners, am, but Jesus died for me. And that does not mean that I am this day sinning and that I intend to disobey God. No, no, not a thousand times no. It simply means that apart from the one who died on the cross for me, I will forever be a wretched sinner. I will die and be lost in hell apart from him. He's the one who makes it all possible. That's what he's trying to say to us. It was a debt that was immense and you'd never be able to pay it. That stands out, the immensity of the debt. And secondly, the impossibility of ever, ever paying for what you did or ever clearing yourself of what you did. You can never do it. And I close with one other consideration. 
This is, this is very awesome. And that third consideration is this. There are in this passage, or there is in this passage, an implication of the serious penalty for one who is unwilling to forgive. The Lord looks at you and looks at me this morning and says, Son, daughter, do you mean, do you really mean you're saying to me that you actually broke fellowship with that man or that woman over that? That you really haven't spoken to that person for weeks or months or years over that? Are you telling me that you actually destroyed a church over that? Are you really telling me that you won't even fellowship over that? That puny $20 offense? just so he wants to look into our souls and says how utterly foolish of you and I think with tears would say to us how that disappoints me some years ago I was privileged to visit the the holy land and one afternoon brother Lawrence Bronk from Salem, Ohio. And I walked to the hill that is regarded as, as Golgotha, Calvary, where there was a Muslim cemetery now. And I remember that afternoon, we, he said, you know, Brother Bob, he said, we ought to pray up here. I said, yeah, we should, Brother Brown. So we knelt by a tombstone. We prayed. And God met us on that hill. And it was afternoon. And I was looking out to the west and the sun was beginning to sink a little lower in the sky. And I said, one day he hung on a cross on this hill for me. The blood ran from his body for me. And he hung there in disgrace because his clothes were gone. Whose clothes? God's clothes. Whose body, whose blood, his body, his blood. And I saw the flies swarming around him. And I saw the disgrace and the humiliation of it all. And I wept.
how can we lift our heads except to say, you did it for me, Lord. When I didn't deserve it, you died for me. And how if all of us, all of us would go back to the cross, back to the foot of the cross, there God would show us something. And there I think we would see how foolish. Yea, more than that, dear ones, I think we'd see how sinful. I said, how sinful our attitudes are. The burden and, I mean, constant burden of the founder of this camp was that if he could just see all of God's people coming together, he was a great ecumenical preacher. And he told us, didn't he? Way back, some of you were there. In that place, he said, of heaven, there be no Nazarene tables, no Wesleyan tables, no free Methodist tables. There be one table at that great marriage supper. I wouldn't be surprised if Brother French were still living, if he were still living, and if he were able to preach to us today. that he would say the same thing again. And he would say to us, let's reach out to each other. You see, you can go back from this camp meeting to your church and you can reach out for somebody who's been separated from you, estranged from you, and you can freely forgive. And you say, but Brother Whitaker, if... If you only knew, wait, 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 before you say that, wait, what does this scripture say? And then whatever that is, is going to look awfully small in the light of all that he's done for you. And in this service this afternoon, maybe during this camp meeting, there's someone that you ought to reach out to. Because while you, you know, it's like it's all right, it's, it's all forgiven, you know in your heart that there, things aren't right yet. You need to go to that brother and to that sister. I believe that if we did that, it would, it would help clear the atmosphere. Praise the Lord. And not that God isn't helping us, but that he'd be able to help us in a greater measure because some of the greatest services I've ever seen on these grounds have come when God's people, the ones who are called by his name, humble themselves. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying. Be like little children. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been
Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Spend pets, I don't want to lose the fire, I don't want to lose the fire.